we actually have democratized the Democratic Party in Tennessee. And what I mean by that is people feel more engaged at the county level, at the local level. We have you know, more progressives running for office, younger people running for office, women, people of color running for office. We've thrown open the doors to the Democratic Party here in the state. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Mary Mancini, Democratic State Party Chair in Tennessee. Mary has spent three terms as chair and is not running for a fourth term. I really enjoyed hearing Mary's story, which ranges widely from founding and running a record store to hosting a progressive radio show and producing a political documentary film to working as executive director of Tennessee Citizen Action, running for state Senate, all before she became party chair. Mary also helped me get a better understanding of the landscape of progressive efforts in Tennessee politics. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mary Mancini and the Tennessee Democratic Party. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Mary. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Not a problem. Thank you. So my name is Mary Mancini. I am currently the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party. I was born and raised in Seaford, uh, which is a small town on Long Island, uh, on the South Shore near Jones Beach. Uh, and I lived there until I uh, went away to college. I went to Syracuse University to the um, Newhouse School of Communications. After college, I worked in the music industry for a a bit in New York City at Electra Records and then moved on to Nashville where I wanted to stay in the music industry, but my career took a very different path. I opened a small business called Lucy's Record Shop, which was a a record store and a punk rock all ages music venue. I did that for about six years, sold the store and went into technology and worked at Nashville's uh, premier internet service provider and a software development company. And then right around 2004, I got very involved in politics and started a a talk radio show called Liberadio. It was the only progressive talk radio uh, programs in Tennessee at the time. And it was aired on WRVU station once a week. Did that for six years uh, from there, I it went into politics e- even more and activism. I was executive director of an organization called Tennessee Citizen Action. I ran for state senate. And then after that campaign, uh, the job for chair became open and I ran for chair. 
and I'm currently in my third term. It's a fascinating career, I think. (laughs) (laughs) A little uh, circuitous. That's the path, yes. But I think really helpful, I think, to have a lot of different perspectives on the economy and politics before you're chair of a state party, right? 100%. 100%. It helped being a small business owner. I understood those challenges. When I became an activist and an organizer, I spent a lot of time in rural parts of of the state and beginning to understand the economics of uh, of rural Tennessee and the politics of rural Tennessee and, and small town life, you know, and, and and plus living in Nashville gave me a different perspective, right? This is a blue dot in, in a red state. And so, you know, what, what are the urban areas like? Uh, it's given me a lot of different perspectives. If you don't mind, I want to ask you more about that path that you took because it's so interesting. Tell me about Lucy's Record Shop and what you learned running a business of that size in that arena. I learned primarily that it takes a village. I started it um, because really I could not find a job in the music industry in in Nashville. And uh, a friend of mine came to visit and he's like, hey, let's go record store shopping. And what we realized is that there were no independent record stores so when I decided to start Lucy's, it was because I was trying to fill uh, a niche in the market that um, that was missing. And so, so that was the first lesson, right, is find that niche and you have a good chance of being successful. The, the other thing that I really did uh, learn in hindsight is, you know, if you decide that you want to go into a business, uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to find experience in that business. And what I meant was I had never worked in a record shop before. And I think it would have been helpful if I had. <laughs> so, Definitely. Uh, you know, so I, so I went into it and, and, you know, I worked retail, but when I was a teenager and I was flying blind a lot. But then the other thing is it takes a village in that I started a record shop and it was only a record shop. And it, it was, you know, getting a lot of customers, getting good feedback in the community because it did again fill a niche but at one point about three months in a knock came on my door and it was a a couple named don and april kendall who had been doing all ages punk rock shows around town called the migraine matinees on sundays and the place that they were doing their migraine matinees closed and so they were looking for a place to do a show and they had gone next door to the bar the next door bar said, you know, no, we don't want to do this. And, and then they said, well, what's this place? And it ended up being my shop. And so they came in and they noticed all of this space, this, this 2,400 square foot space of which I was using probably about 800 square feet for the record shop. Uh, And they looked and their eyes just got really big and they were like, Hey, let's put on a show, you know? And so they were like, Hey, we want to do these shows. We're going to build the stage. We're going to bring in the sound system. And we are going to, you know, have these shows on Sunday. And I was like, sure, it sounds like a great idea, you know. Uh, and it ended up being the best thing to happen to the shop because it really, it brought more more people in, more kids in. It became a real destination. And at, at some point during the process, you know, we decided, well, let's actually become legal, right? Let's get up to codes and let's start having shows on uh, every, almost every night of the week. And so it really became a place that, touring musicians and touring bands 
would know that if they were touring the country, and this was back in the 90s when a lot of that was going on and a lot of DIY stuff, you know, they knew that they had a home and a place to play in, when they came to Nashville. It was a great experience and, and I learned so much. And yes, learning, you know, about the economics of small business and, you know, what it was like and the difficulties and uh, of, of actually trying to make it, you know, as a small business. And I could use those lessons and sort of when I, as chair of the party, driving around the state and seeing just how these small town squares were trying to reinvent themselves as places where small businesses you know, had a chance to start and to thrive, you know, whether it's a, a, you know, a coffee shop or an antique shop or just a little shop that sells like clothes. And, you know, cause these, these town squares used to be very vibrant, right? They used to be where everybody did their shopping. And then we all know the story about how the big box retailers came in and sort of just drove them all out of business. Well, they're all trying to become you know, they're they're trying to become, you know, part of the community again. And so, yeah, it gave me a really interesting perspective on that. I always, whenever I traveled around, I would always go and buy something or at least a cup of coffee in one of those local places on one of those small town squares. I felt it was vitally important for them. I read that you married a musician. What point along this path that you've been describing, did you meet him and did that fit in at all with the the record shop and that scene. Yeah, it, it really did. It was about, um, I guess, a year into Lucy's Lucy's existence when Kurt came into my life uh, as a member of the band Lamb Chop, who ended up playing at the store. I didn't see what the attraction was in terms of the music at the time, but people seemed to really like it, so we kept booking them. I listened to his NPR desk concert and I thought he was great and, and has a good sense of humor. <laughs> yes, he does. He, and he is great. And he's extraordinarily talented. I didn't understand the music at the time. He's kind and smart and funny. And, you know, I married him for, for all of the, and talented. And I married him for <laughs> all of those reasons, not just because he could play guitar. Right? <laughs> so, um, so we just, yeah, we just met and, and gradually after being friends for about a year, started to date and fell in love and got engaged about nine months after that and married about, you know, a year after that. You know, he was with me throughout almost the entire length of, of Lucy's being in existence. Right now, I love Lamb Chop and I love my husband's <laughs> music. It really did grow on me. <laughs> it's not a vegetarian's band, though. <laughs> no, it's, well, I'm not a vegetarian. So no, I'm not okay. saying you are, but I'm just saying. <laughs> as no, names come, no, no. why was the store Lucy's, not Mary's? So, actually, the store's original name was Revolutions Per Minute. And the idea was that it was always going to be a place where people could come and, you know, not just buy. Uh, maybe records that they couldn't get anywhere else, but also express ideas that they maybe couldn't express anywhere else, right? So what I mean by that is, again, the 90s, there was a very healthy, you know, riot girl scene, DIY scene. And so I wanted to make it a place where those members of those organizations or, or, or kids who felt as if they were, you know, disenfranchised because they just didn't think like everybody else, you know, had a place to express themselves and bring their zines to sell or their tapes to sell. And, 
And so, you know, that's why I named it Revolutions Per Minute, uh, you know, big pun, right? People with revolutionary thought processes or things that were a revolutionary way of thinking could come there and express themselves. And of course, you know, 33 RPM. So, but then I had a dog at the time named Lucy, a Weimaraner. And what I realized is, you know, a couple months in is that people were coming to the store to see her. It just seemed like the smart thing to do branding and marketing wise uh, was to rename it uh, Lucy's and make her sort of the focal point. And we had a really fun logo that um, a friend of mine did that uh, featured her sort of a cartoony uh, picture of a cartoony dog holding a record in, in her mouth. So, uh, so that's the reason why. What occasioned your turn into the political world? As a career, it was the 2004 election. But I, but I have to say, I've always been political. And, and I think you, you know, by describing Lucy's and what the shop was going to, was trying to be, there was a, definitely a strain of, of politics and activism running through it. But in terms of, of making it a career, it really was a 2004 election. And I, and I decided, I, I, you know, I just have to do something. I didn't like the direction the country was going in. And I wanted to, you know, do something about it. So I started a volunteer organization to, to register voters. And what we did was we would go to other venues that had shows and we would uh, register kids who were standing on, in line to get in. And then from there, uh, that morphed into the radio show, which was all volunteer, but it, it exposed me to a lot of elected officials at every level, uh, a lot of candidates that were running for office, a lot of activists and organizers, you know, because we did interviews all the time. Uh, it wasn't just a talk show. Stop on that for a sec, because I never heard of, uh, do you say Liber Liberadio? Yeah, Liberadio. Uh, you know, not being from Tennessee, I didn't know about it. Tell me what a show was like. And if you did that for almost six years, that must have been pretty formative for you. What What did you learn about politics in your state through that and about building a radio show like that? The format of the show, it was Liber Radio with Mary Mancini and Freddie O'Connell. Uh, Freddie is now a councilman here in Nashville. The idea of the show was to always be exposing listeners to people in politics and people who were trying to make change in the community. And so what we learned, I think, is that we were never at a loss for guests because there were so many people who were working on so many issues in so many different ways, whether they were elected councilmen or elected state legislators or whether they were running for mayor or were the existing mayor or, you know, the ex our existing congressman, uh, whether they were activists in, you know, organizations with a emphasis on healthcare or social justice or economic justice or, or racial justice. Uh, you know, we just learned that there were so many people out there that were trying to make a difference. And I think that's the thing that has stuck with me through my entire career is that, the picture that gets painted of Tennessee as being a completely, you know, red state where there's no hope for progress or change, 
uh, or that you know people are, are happy with the status quo here is a false picture. And, and we get painted on the national level by news. You know, we get made fun of all the time by, you know, whether it was John Stewart back then or it's Stephen Colbert now. That picture is very different than what the reality is. And the reality is, is that there are people here that are busting their butts every day to make this state a better place for everyone to live and to work, you know, and so that everybody has an opportunity for a better future for themselves and for their family, you know, and not just a select few. There's no doubt they're doing it against very difficult odds, but they are doing it. And so that was my introduction to all of that, you know, back then in the 2000s. And again, you know, exposed me to that attitude that was happening all across the state, not just in Nashville. Sounds like a another really good preparation for state party politics. Oh, 100%. Yeah, because while this was going on, right, like I also had a uh, – we had a companion blog. So as a radio show host, I was able to get a press pass and go to the state capitol. And so it was then that I started sitting in on committee meetings and hearing from legislators and meeting with legislators and meeting with uh, – at the time there was a, a, a fight against – we have one of the most egregious government issue photo ID to vote laws. Uh, and it was right about the time that the, uh, the Republicans are trying to pass that. And so, you know, we did a lot of work to try to change people's minds about it. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time at the state legislature as well. And that's kind of where I really learned that, that, that the state level is where so much policy gets made. You know, I remember in 2008, while everybody else was celebrating because Barack Obama had just gotten elected, I remember going out with some friends of mine to celebrate the election and, uh, you know, going to a bar afterwards and everybody was so happy. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want to rain on everybody else's parade. But all I could think about was, wow, we just lost the state legislature for the first time in over 200 years. That state level politics was not on a lot of people's radar. Everybody was so excited because of the of the presidential election, and and that's the way a lot of people are now. It's definitely changing, but that's still the way a lot of people are now. Uh, tell me about a movie called Uncounted. Gosh, what a great experience that was! So, a friend of mine, friend and neighbor, actually started to uh, really get into the problems with our elections. And, and you hear a lot about it now. But back then, this was again, 2007. The uh, electronic voting machines were, were starting to become very popular. And the federal government was giving money to states to buy these machines. And Tennessee was right up there with them. But there's a huge amount of problem with these machines, you know, software that Nobody can see, you know, secretive software, um, no paper trail. You know, I mean, it's just, the list just goes on and on. And so he uh, understood that and he started doing, he's a documentary filmmaker, and he started doing more and more research and then realized, wow, there's just like, this is not just about the machines. There's so many other ways in which people's votes are, are suppressed. And so he made this documentary. We met, he started talking to me about it. I understood the issue the same way he did. And so he brought me on as a producer and a media specialist. And we just spent pretty much a, a, the year before the election, just traveling around the country, showing this documentary and trying to open people's eyes to what had happened in 2004, 
you know, because it starts back in 2004, the John Kerry, George Bush election, and, and what that might mean for this election coming up, right? Well, what happens if Barack Obama actually loses, right? Does he lose because he didn't get enough votes or does he lose because the, the machines were rigged? What's really fascinating to me now is the same, we're having that same conversation for this election. And there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot that's not quite the same, but there are a lot of parallels. And you know, it all goes back to how we should be running elections. And the and the Georgia, the the guy that I forget his name right now, but he was in charge of the Georgia elections. You know, he said, look, we have an election system that's backed up by paper. And I was so happy to hear that because I thought if the, if the machines are just all electronic and there's no paper backup, we'll never really know what happened in Georgia. But luckily, everybody sort of got the message that if we're going to use these machines, we need to have a paper backup. And so a lot of states, Tennessee is not one of them, but a lot of states have actually taken a step back and have started you know, either retrofitting their machines with paper ballot access or, you know, getting new machines with paper ballot access. Tennessee Citizen Action, that's that's the local part of U.S. action, right? Yes. Why was that the next thing to do? So this kind of goes back to, while I was working in technology, I worked in technology for about 10 years. You know, I was doing the, the radio show on the side and then I, I started, I was asked to be on a, uh, several other panels for local shows, public affairs shows. And so my public profile started to get raised. And so somebody came to me and they said, hey, look, we're, we have an opening on the board for Tennessee Citizen Action. We think you'd be a great fit. Do you want to be on the board? And so I actually came on as the board member. Then I, I sort of quit my technology job and just started focusing on the radio show full time. Uh, and then about a year later, the, the executive director of Citizen Action um, resigned and uh, they asked me to transition from the board to executive director. That's how it came in. And, it's, and it all really does go back to the, the stuff that I had done on my own in a volunteer capacity and how that, again, raised, it raised my profile uh, but also exposed me to a lot of the inner workings of politics and activism. And so I was, I was really able to then slide into the role as executive director, not having paid experience, right, in that field, but just having all this accumulated experience that I had uh, uh, used my free time to gather. So what did Citizen Action try to do while you were in charge? What was the main thing that you were pursuing? So, so a couple of different things. Uh, first of all, it was a, a, a grassroots organizing organization where part of the, the mission was to teach and train activists on how to do their own grassroots organizing. Uh, so that was a big part of it. But the lobbying part was primarily fighting against the attacks on workers' compensation. And, and then the other one was voting rights and uh, voter access. So those were the two really big things. Um, it was a consumer rights organization was what we we called it, but the mission was pretty broad. It was a great experience because working with labor was really, you know, eye-opening. We live in a, a state that is not 
workforce friendly. The thing I think people don't understand is that um, there's a there should be a partnership between labor and and business, and that's where unions come in, right? Unions are the organizations that make sure that there is a partnership and a balance. And because there isn't here, the labor force is sort of considered you know, almost um, disposable. Everything is done to support and sustain business at the expense of labor. And so at the time, they were trying to gut workers' compensation laws. And they were, very, they were successful in it. I mean, at that point, the Republicans had control of the legislature and the Democrats didn't even have to show up. Unfortunately, we're in that same position now. It's a supermajority for Republicans, right? Yes. Yeah. That's a tough place to be a Democratic elected official. Why Why did you run for state Senate in those circumstances? I thought that I had a voice that needed to be heard on the Senate floor. And it was it was the voice that I'm, I'm articulating right now, right? Someone who had been a small business owner, who had been the executive director of an organizing and lobbying organization, who was an activist, the voice of the people, right? I had all this experience and I felt at the time it was a voice that was missing from, um, from the Senate, from the state Senate. I lost in the primary. It's one of the heavily gerrymandered districts. So whoever won in the primary was going to go on and win in the general. I uh, lost in the primary. I got about 44% of the vote, um, which was a respectable showing considering uh, people considered my candidacy out of nowhere. Um, and so we surprised everyone by getting that much of the vote. But right now we have uh, Jeff Yarbrough, who's this, the senator. We just, he just got reelected again for another four-year term. And, and he's great. I mean, all of our fighting six senators um, do amazing work uh, fighting against a, a, a Republican supermajority. I read that you're retiring as chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party, but you ran one three times, I guess. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. what's the experience like? What What's it like trying to run a state party in a, in a state that went 60-40 for Trump? This is the best job I've ever had, and it's also the worst job I've ever had. It's been a wonderful experience, and I think that we actually have democratized the Democratic Party in Tennessee. And what I mean by that is people feel more engaged at the county level, at the local level. We have you know, more progressives running for office younger people running for office, women, people of color running for office. We've thrown open the doors to the Democratic Party here in the state. At a time, it was the activists and the organizers were were kept kind of at arm's length, I think. It's not the way to make change. You know, you need the, the, the folks that are going to rabble rouse, right? You need them as part of the, the actual structure of the Democratic Party. I hit the ground running when I got elected and started traveling across the state and listening to people and having listening sessions. And, you know, what, what do you think is wrong? What do you think needs to be changed? And we implemented a lot of those changes. We've actually been winning. You don't hear this a lot um, because it's not, they're not large numbers, but, you know, we flipped a, a seat in the state house in 2016. We flipped two more 
in 2018, you know, we were one of only 10 states this past election to flip a state legislative seat. In 2018, we had a net gain for the first time in in over 20 years. Uh, again, not huge numbers, but things are changing. And we have more people run for office than than we've had in the past. And again, um, you know, all different folks from all different walks of life. And I think that's what we're most proud of is more people involved in, in the party in Tennessee as Democrats. You know, the other thing is when I, when I took over, one of the things I've heard was, you know, I live in a small town in Blunt County and I, I'm afraid to say out loud that I'm a Democrat. And, you know, so we really tried to give people the tools that they needed to, to, to try and overcome that in terms of, you know, messaging and just organizational infrastructure. And it's made a difference. You know, the other thing that's made a difference, too, though, is that we've had a great partner in Donald Trump with that, you know, because people were just like, I am just I'm just fed up with hiding. You know, I'm not going to hide it anymore. Yeah, I'm a Democrat and I'm proud of it. It's also a good time to, for a lot of folks to sort of decide that they had had enough. When I was paying attention to Tennessee politics back in the 80s, you had two Democratic senators, uh, Gore and Sasser. You had a Democratic legislature. You usually elected Democratic governors, if I remember. Along with a lot of the border states in the South, things flipped over over time, different times in different states. How do you understand that change from solidly Democratic, really, to solidly Republican? I mean, it does show that it can happen from one party to the other, but what do you think really underlay that in Tennessee? This is a question that um, we all in politics in Tennessee try to answer. And I, I think the, the answer is that there's just not one answer. And I think it's important for us to understand that it is a combination of things. When I first took over, I took some phone calls from people that that literally said, so now that you're chair, what are you going to do to get the Democrats who left the party back? And they left the party in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. And it really shocked me because the answer to that is... We don't want them back. You don't change who you are or your values to try to get people back who don't align with your values. And if they left the party because we elected Barack Obama because he's black and they left the party because of that, well, good riddance. You know, so I think that had something to do with it. We lost a lot of people. Think about what Tennessee is, what kind of state Tennessee is, you know, how we fit into the union and the Civil War and the Southern strategy and history. When you think all about that, you go, okay, well, that makes sense that a lot of people would leave the Democratic Party in 2008. So so part of it is that. One of the other parts is that Tennessee is the buckle of the Bible Belt. And so we have many churches with many pastors who are preaching that if you are a Democrat, you're going to hell, basically. And that is not an exaggeration. 
right? So that's another piece of it. And then the third piece is purely peer pressure. Right now, in a lot of small towns in Tennessee, if you are not a Republican, then you're not going to get invited to the Rotary Club, right? So there's that. One of the other things is communication and the stranglehold that uh, right-wing radio and small-town newspapers have on parts of Tennessee that, and we've tried, you know, one of the things we tried to implement was this idea of, well, if we could just get booked on the local radio show, conservative talk radio show or public affairs radio show, if we could just get an op-ed or letters to the editor in some of the local newspapers, then things will change. Well, the problem is, is that you can't get into the local newspapers, right? They won't let you. They're not interested in running alternative opinions. And you're not going to get booked on the local conservative talk radio shows. Again, not interested, right, in anybody else's opinion. They're small town versions of Rush Limbaugh. And then when you combine that with what's happening in, in conservative talk radio statewide, and then what's happening on the national level, it's really difficult to break through that. So the water cooler talk is preaching to the choir. It's what, what did they hear on Sunday from their preacher or minister? It's what did they hear from their local conservative talk radio show host? It's what did they hear from Rush Limbaugh? It's what did they hear from Fox News? And it's this And then it's what do they hear from Republican leadership? And the Republican leadership in Tennessee has done nothing to actually make civil dialogue and balance and anti-extremist language. Um, They've done nothing to help to fix that. And as a matter of fact, they've they've done everything that they can to exacerbate that. So those are just some of the reasons why that we're in the situation that we're in and some other states are in the situation that they're they're in. It's not just one answer. It is just a combination. You know, one of the things that was really shocking is back in 2018, we had Governor Phil Bredesen run for the U.S. Senate. This was a man who, the last time he ran for governor in 2006, he won all 95 counties. When he ran two years ago for U.S. Senate, he got 44% of the vote, which really just kind of shocked everybody. Now, in 2020, we had almost 300,000 new voters for the general election. 200,000 of them were Republican voters, new Republican voters. It's just where we are right now, which is this constant barrage of of negativity about the Democrats and the progressives and, uh, you know, combined with everything else that I just <laughs> described. But there's not just one reason. You familiar with the book, I assume, uh, What's the Matter with Kansas? I am, yes. It's fairly similar. Not a southern state, but a cultural shift and a lot of anger towards liberal elites and in his view, leading people to vote against their economic self-interest. But you know what's interesting about that term, Nathaniel, mm-hmm. is it's less of them voting against their economic self-interest and more about them voting for the things that are more important, the values and the interests that are more important to them. 
pro-life things like that guns right guns pro and, and again everybody has a different reason why you know some it's because they're just being told to do so others is because they believe it when you know somebody gives them the the line about guns or about abortion or you know the, the fact that people of color are starting to step up and take power and not waiting you know that they're actually running to be elected uh, you know i think it's great <laughs> you know and a lot of other people think it's great but it literally scares the bejesus out of some people right like they and that's the other thing too that that i didn't mention uh that i wanted to mention is you know fear isn't always racism based well let me rephrase that not outwardly right like of course you're going to have some folks who who are just outwardly racist but some people just are fearful you know kind of reminds me of growing up on long island in a way right like my dad my dad went to the city every day and mingled with you know for work and mingled with all kinds of people my mom was a stay at home mom who just read the newspaper and this was the 70s, the 60s and the 70s, when New York City was having some really, really hard times, right? She was so much more fearful than my dad. And I think we're looking at the same exact thing, right? People that live and are exposed to, you know, different people and different ideas are less fearful than folks who are just spoon-fed fear via the news. And that's a lot of what we're dealing with right now. So when... You know, the National Republican Party sends out a, a mail piece that has one of our local state candidates pasted next to a scary uh, photo of Nancy Pelosi that says the socialists are coming to, to take away your way of life. Well, it works here. And it's unfortunate, but it, it does. So that's, a, that's another reason why the, where, where we are in Tennessee is there's a lot of fear of the other. There's this split in the Democratic Party, simplified as sort of Hillary or Biden versus Sanders. Some of the people that support Sanders would argue that a left-wing populism is an effective counter to this right-wing populism. People on the more moderate wing see that as, you know, not going to play for all the reasons that socialism is is tough to sell in more conservative parts of the country. How do you see that from the lens of Tennessee? We have got to stop using those terms when we describe ourselves. That is our biggest mistake. We all share the same values. Every Democrat that I know believes that Everyone should have access to affordable health care, that they should be able to take their kid to the doctor when they're sick, right? That they should have a hospital nearby in case of emergencies, uh, that they should you know, not have to choose between buying medication or prescriptions and putting food on the table. There is not one Democrat who doesn't believe that. That's the populist message, Right. That's what we should be using. And instead, what we're doing is we're sitting around just throwing out these divisive terms like conservative or moderate or, you know, using names like Clinton versus Sanders or Biden versus Sanders. And we're doing it to ourselves. 
We are absolutely 100% doing it to ourselves. I, I read Democrats say that in the newspaper all the time. It's divisive and it's what's causing the rift. And the Republicans are sitting around just you know, laughing because we're fighting amongst ourselves, right? I really kind of strongly agree with you. And it, you know, it's one thing that I've tried to do on this show with you know, more than 500 people I've talked to is to talk to people who others would place across that spectrum at all ends of it. Try to tr talk to them all similarly because it's the same team. Well, first of all, we can't win without all of us. And second of all, <laughs> right. we are so unified in in our differences with the Republicans and the conservatives. 100%. Yeah, you got it. It goes back again to we all share the same values. We may have policy differences on how we get there, but the, the, the reality is we're all working and fighting towards the same thing. And that's what we I think we have to remember and what we should talk about more. I mean, even watching the reception that Biden nominees get or floated nominees get from different parts of the party, you see so much of that. It's very frustrating to me to see that the shooting at ourselves going on. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I kind of expect that viewpoint from the party chair, right? Because your job is not to get Democrats necessarily to support one policy position. Your job is to unite the party to be most effective to get a chance at governing. Exactly. 100%. But it doesn't have to be just the party chairs <laughs> that do that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of George Lakoff, right? I'm a big fan of talking about values that unite us. I'm a big fan of not fighting amongst ourselves on specific policy points. And Holding, holding the other side accountable. You know, I was just listening to an interview just the other day with a Republican and a Democrat talking about the error of Donald Trump. And, you know, the Republican was actually said, like, it's the responsibility of the Democrats to change the damage that Trump has done. His response was a direct response to the, the Democrats saying, you know, well, the Republicans' leaderships, they're not doing anything to help. They're not holding Trump accountable. They're not speaking out. There's maybe a handful of them speaking out. And the guy flipped it and said, like, no, it's the responsibility of the Democrats to do that. They're not helping. And then went on this long tangent about Nancy Pelosi, you know. And, it's, and that, to me, is what I think is the most frustrating, is that we have yet to learn the lesson of being able to do that. We always sort of want to take the blame ourselves instead of following a line of, of like, hey, look, you guys, the, the Republican leaders aren't doing anything and following that. Instead, we get easily distracted by them changing the conversation. And that, again, is something that we, we have to get better at. And I'm just going to say one more thing <laughs> about that, because you're also hearing right now. Nathaniel, a lot of conversation about the message has to be better. The message has to be better. The message has to be better. I'm telling you as someone who lives in Tennessee and who has experienced creating a good message, the problem isn't the message. The problem is the message delivery system. We don't have one. <laughs> we <just> don't. <laughs> that is the problem. <laughs> we don't have the one that the, the kind that they have. You know, I, even to the point where I've looked into, you know, what is it going to, what would it take to buy 
a bunch of local radio stations around the state? Like, what would that look like? You know, like, well, what's available? How much would they cost? What would you need to, and what kind of investment? Because we don't have a message delivery system that is on par with with them and 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 they want to yell they want to say like we control the media and there's a reason why they want to say that right because it deflects from the fact that actually they control the media and they control it from the water cooler the pulpit local radio local newspapers but they constantly claim that we control it because we you know new york times and washington post and cbs news or and and twitter but my point is how much of what is written in the, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, on Twitter, and even here in Tennessee, we've got a couple of online newspapers and, and outlets that are very you know, progressive. But what is their, what is their listenership and readership out, you know, in these small places where everybody's saying Democrats have to do better about messaging to rural communities? Absolutely 100% right. The problem is we are having a hard time making inroads into these communities where they, the conservatives, have the message completely locked up. And this goes back to what I was saying before, and will not let you in. When are we going to build a message delivery system at that local level? And, you know, right now, our best message delivery system that we have in in Tennessee, at least, have been our candidates. We have had amazing candidates who have stepped up to run in rural parts of the of the communities, rural parts of the state. You know, I I mean, just incredibly qualified, incredibly hardworking. Uh, You know, they're out there talking to voters. They're changing people's minds. And it's so important. But they're also running in in a district that's been drawn. So it's 70 percent. Republican versus 30% Democrat or 65% Republican versus 35% Democrat. What chance do they have of of winning? Zero. We also have to change, right? Besides a message delivery system. And I know that the the organization that Eric Holder and Barack Obama are working on, you know, are doing um, national democratic redistricting committee are doing great work in this area, but we have to change the fundamental problems with our democratic process, redistricting reform, getting money out of politics, um, those are two huge things that need to be fixed. Uh, so, you know, three, when you add the, the message delivery system problem that we have, the DAC is stacked against us here in Tennessee. You know, we have no mechanism for fixing redistricting. There's no, we don't, we, we don't have any referendum options. It's all controlled by whoever controls the state legislature. You know, the process is usually done in secret. Two of your reps are Democrat, your U.S congressional reps out of what 10 or something um out of nine out of nine yeah i mean if uh you can carry 40 to 40 percent of the state you should probably have 40 to 45 percent of the representatives if it was fairly redistricted right which would be four 100 percent 100 percent same and and if you extrapolate that and and go down to the uh to the State, state level absolutely you know again you shouldn't have a super majority against you. That's that's an artifact of redistricting. Absolutely, one hundred percent. You know, hey, I'll, I, we could at least, if not forty four, we should at least have forty two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> because I'll I'll give that. You know. Yeah, because there should be a very strong relationship between votes and seats. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And so that's that's another thing. Another 
reason why, you know, being a Democrat in Tennessee is exhausting is because we're constantly running up against, you know, these artificial barriers. So, yeah, it's tough. I can't imagine how frustrating. (laughs) Anytime you have no power and you're trying to do something, it's you can't get anything done. I'm curious about the progressive infrastructure. You've talked about the media infrastructure and how mostly devoid of progressive ideas it is. But I know that in, you know, in just about every state, you have a lot of advocacy groups and civil rights groups and environmental groups and all kinds of organizing entities that sit outside the party as well as the party organizations. What does it look like in Tennessee? Where's the energy and the strength? Labor, too. First of all, everybody's in the same bucket, right? If you are working for progressive change at any level, you are you're in the same frustrating bucket trying to crawl out, right? So it's tough. Our infrastructure, every cycle just gets better and, and better. And more and more people become involved. More and more organizations start. So a couple of examples. You know, about four or five years ago, Emerge Tennessee started, you know, Emerge is a national organization that trains women candidates, right? So we have an Emerge chapter. Uh, we've got a uh, Women for Tennessee's Future, which is a uh, pack that just gives money to women candidates. Uh, we've got a rural Tennessee Democratic Party rural caucus that is going gangbusters. Their leaders are amazing, and they're really trying to work in on the rural parts of the state and ter- on all the things that we mentioned. Uh, we've got more and more people that are stepping up to run for local office. You know, women of color in the Board of Aldermen in Tullahoma, Tennessee, for the first time ever, right? Um, You know, a woman elected to the city council in Maryville, Tennessee, for the first time ever. You know, she's young, right? Like, they're all, they're both young. So there's a lot of that infrastructure, too. There's organizations that are focused on racial um, and economic justice uh, for, for Black people that one in particular called the Equity Alliance that is you know, doing great work on the ground to organize black communities, register black voters, turn out black voters, train black activists and organizers. It's happening and it's happening on the ground, uh, which is really exciting. Every two years you know, after the election, it amazes me the strength that these folks have to keep at it. You know, to actually celebrate the the small victories and and to keep going, like nobody's giving up on Tennessee. These progressive activists and candidates and organizations, they just want to keep going, and that's what really is the most exciting thing for the future. You know, right now there's nine people running to become chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party. Nine, right? That's amazing. That's amazing. so many people want. That so many people want this job. You know, one of them I interviewed. Uh, on my show, uh, I noticed on the list, London Lamar. Oh, you did? Yeah, she's great. I talked back in 2017 to some folks from Emerge. Are you endorsing any of them or what? where are you in the <laughs> no, politics of that? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm letting the process play itself out. I want to be helpful to whoever gets elected. So, you know, whoever that is, they can obviously would like to keep in touch and uh, help in any way that I can. Why did you decide to not continue? It's a combination of things. You know, as you could tell, I'm I'm not one for there being one answer to everything, right? <laughs> for one reason why. Life is and complicated. It's a combination. 
<laughs> Life is complicated. <laughs> this is complicated. I just think it's, it's time for a different energy. That's really the primary focus. What a lot of people don't know is when you're chair of a party, and I'm, I'm one of the few paid chairs in the country. A lot of chairs are actually just volunteer, and their primary job is you know, to be the face of the party and to, to you know, help raise money. And, and a lot of the day-to-day work and, and other fundraising kind of falls on the uh, shoulders of the executive director. Our model is a little different. I'm the primary fundraiser. And I'm telling you all this because asking people for money is exhausting. <laughs> so I think that's another one of the reasons why, you know, it's just time. I think there needs to be a different energy. You know, I feel like I've done uh, about as much as that I can do. Uh, and it's just time to, to move on to something new. What are you going to do? I don't know. I mean, there's so much opportunity out there. You know, it's, um, again, so much opportunity in Tennessee. We have so much work to do still. Uh, there's also a new Democratic administration in the White House. And so, you know, there's opportunity uh, that comes with that. There's also opportunity to go someplace different too, you know, see what's happening maybe in New York or uh, what else is happening in DC. Got to wrap this up. I'm still chair until January 16th. We'll just see. We'll see what happens. Uh, well, what? <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think it's great to have a chance to, to start a new chapter. There are so many ways to spend your life and you've had such a varied career so far why not open the door, especially when it's been a frustrating job as well as a great job? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Best job and worst job I've ever had. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, maybe I can just go somewhere and become an executive chef. I don't know. <laughs> so, oh, That's funny. Yes, we'll see what happens. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? No, I, I, you're such a good interviewer. I just want to let you know that. I was listening to some of the past podcasts just to get an idea. And uh, you ask such great questions. You really do. So, no, I think I think you've kind of nailed it. Wow. Thank you. That's a great praise from a former radio person who did a lot of interviews. Well, there's an art to it, right? Then you've got it down. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm working on it. I, I think I'm better than when I started. That's the one thing I can say. Mary, it's been really an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else you want to say? Just thank you for having me, Nathaniel. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, it was such a, a great experience talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Mary Mancini. Mary's at tndp.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.